Some of you will remember me telling you about my first job ever. I've had a lot of jobs. Uh, I've loaded trucks. I spent one summer in college in an unair conditioned warehouse with no windows, boxing lawnmower engines. I've done some roofing. But by far, the hardest job I've ever had was my first one. I worked at the candy counter at the Sears store on Jefferson Boulevard in Oak Cliff. I say the hardest job because of the simple reason. People that buy candy are rude. They really are. If a man is waiting to buy a $500 suit, he'll be patient for five minutes. But if he wants a quarter pound of chocolate-covered peanuts, he thinks he should be served right away, and he'll let you know that. And I got a rude introduction into the behavior of people. But because of my Christian background and because of the way my parents raised me to have manners, I handled it better than most of the part-time help. And my manager named Charlotte noticed this. And Charlotte became fond of me, and she rather consistently would schedule me to work on the nights when she worked because she enjoyed working with me. And so I've been there for about a year. And one night Charlotte says, Rick, what do you plan to do when you graduate high school? I said, well, Charlotte, I plan to go to a Christian college out in Abilene because I want to be a minister. And a real perplexed look came over her face. And she walked off and a moment later she came back. She said, Rick, I just don't see you as a minister. Well, that was rather disconcerting because I was wondering what has she noticed about me that would make her think I couldn't be a minister. So I said, Charlotte, why can't you see me becoming a minister? She said, oh, I, I don't know. It's just that you seem like such a happy person. <laughs> you see, Charlotte was not a Christian. She didn't pretend. She never went to church. And her perception was that Christians, by a general rule, are not very happy people. And their faces show it. Go downtown Fort Worth and walk up to anybody and use the phrase happy hour. Nobody thinks you're talking about the church service you just left. Why is that? Listen, this is important. The way we portray our faith reflects the portrait we have of God. The signals we give off to people about what our faith is are simply a reflection that grow out of who we think God is. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make when he told the greatest story ever. But to appreciate the story, you have to know the back story. There was a reason he told this story at this time To this crowd. So look at the first two verses of Luke 15. Now, the tax collectors, now stop right there. You know who a tax collector was? A tax collector was a traitor to his own people that bought the right to tax his own people to support the army of Romans that were oppressing the Jews. That's who a tax collector was. He was the lowest of the low on the scumbag totem pole. Now, the tax collectors. And the sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Now, there were many baseless accusations made against Jesus. In fact, at this trial, they couldn't even pay false witnesses to come up with the same story about him. But there were two charges made against Jesus that had some substance. One was he didn't keep the Sabbath. Now, it's not true. He just didn't keep the Sabbath in the legalistic way that the Pharisees did. He kept the Sabbath. But the charge was true that he didn't keep the Sabbath the way his critics did. And he did keep company that his critics didn't. This man welcomes and eats with sinners, they said. Those are present tense verbs that indicate this was his ongoing pattern. And it was their ongoing concern. We've already seen this in the Gospel of Luke back in chapter 5 when he converts a tax collector named Matthew. Matthew throws a party with his scumbag friends and Jesus goes and they say, he's at it again, eating and drinking with sinners. In chapter 7, now he gets invited to the right kind of party. Man's name is Simon, he's a Pharisee, and only the right kind of people show up. And then this lady from the street walks right in and crashes the party and Jesus does what he always does. He welcomes her to the party. Jesus never denied that criticism. And to the Pharisees, it was a credibility-destroying accusation. See, they asked the question, why does Jesus party with the wrong people? Have you ever been offended by a celebration? Do you remember when the man that blew up that plane over Scotland was released and sent back to Libya and he got off the plane and all the people in Libya were celebrating. And Do you remember how that made you feel? Or maybe you've watched a football game and this defensive player just lays out a ball carrier and the guy's on the ground and he's hurt. Maybe he's really hurt. But the defensive player is strutting and dancing and celebrating and it just doesn't seem like he ought to be doing that. This is how the Pharisees felt. Some parties just shouldn't happen. Now listen, they're just being consistent with their portrait of God. Because the way they understood God, the invitation list to a party should be very, very small. But Jesus paints a different portrait. He does it with three stories. The first story was for the men. In verse 3, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he, look at this word, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, look at this word, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Now, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more, look at this word, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You see, it's hard for us to fully appreciate the story because we don't appreciate the culture. In those days, you didn't keep sheep for meat. You kept them for wool. You kept them for years. In fact, you kept them in a common village herd or flock. And so that shepherd out there, he's watching the sheep of the whole village. It's a big deal if one of those sheep gets lost. So Jesus is telling this story, and there's two guys in the back named Benjamin and Joseph. And they're nodding their heads because they remember when Ephraim was shepherd that night, and he lost the flock ram. And they were planning on that ram impregnating all the sheep that that 
gets lambs that next spring. And Ephraim went out all night and he looked for that ram. And when he found that ram, he brought it back to the village. And I mean, everybody got together and they celebrated and had a party. And Joseph and Benjamin are nodding their heads saying, yeah, Jesus, I was, I was at a party like that one time. That was a good party. And then he told a story for the women. Verse 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Look at this word. Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is, what's the word? Rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This isn't a quarter that fell out of her coin purse. In those days, a woman who was married would have a necklace of ten coins. It was a symbol that she was a mother, that she had a family. It was her identity. It would be ladies like you losing your wedding ring. She turns the house upside down looking for that thing. And Jesus is telling this story. And there's these two ladies back there, Rachel and Rebecca. And they're nodding their heads. And you remember when Miriam lost her coin? Do you remember when she found it? Remember she had us all over to the house? Do you remember what a good party we had that day? You see, our problem is we read these stories with the head. And they don't make sense from the head. If you are an accountant... You do not tell a shepherd, leave 99 sheep out in the open and go look for one? That's nuts. You're talking a 1% loss. You're going to more than make that up next spring when the lambs come. Don't take the risk. If you're an accountant, you say, you lost one coin, but you got nine. We will invest them. We will watch the market. We'll get that money back in no time. But you don't read these stories with the head. You read them with the heart. Haven't you ever lost something that had a value to you that far exceeded what it actually cost? Maybe it was an heirloom from your favorite grandparent. Maybe it was something your kids made you when they were in kindergarten. Maybe it was your wedding pictures. Maybe it was your golf clubs. Have you ever been on a trip and you get off the plane and they can't find your golf clubs? Is that not the sickest feeling in the whole entire world? Last June in Tel Aviv in Israel, a daughter noticed that her mother's mattress was worn out and lumpy and dirty. And she thought she would surprise her mother and she bought her a new mattress. She took the old one out on the street for, to be picked up by the trash collectors. She had the new mattress out there. Mom slept on it, thought something doesn't feel right. Took, pulled back the sheets the next day, saw it was a new mattress. She screamed. That's when the daughter realized Mama didn't trust banks. Mama had stuffed a million dollars in that old mattress that had been picked up and taken to the dump. What do you think they'd spent the day doing? Going to dumps all over Tel Aviv. Jesus is saying... Because you have the picture of God you have, you look at these people and you think they're filthy and they're dirty and they just need to be thrown out. But God says they have incredible value and somebody needs to go find them. And the last story he told 
adds the final startling brushstrokes to the portrait. Now, we're going to spend four weeks on the story, so I'm just going to give you a quick recap right now. It is an absolutely stunning story. It's the greatest story ever told. It starts like this. There was this Jewish man. He had two boys. Now, in that culture, a Jewish family had nothing more valuable than land. It's hard to understand how important the concept of land is to Jewish people. And everyone knows that when the daddy dies, the boys will inherit and manage the land. But this youngest boy comes up to his daddy and he says something that absolutely stunned Jesus' crowd. To this day, in the Middle East, if a boy would do this, he'd probably get whipped and kicked out of the house. He comes up to his daddy and says, Dad, you ain't dead quick enough. Can I have my part of the inheritance now? And the only thing more stunning than that request is that the dad said yes. And the dad deeded the boy the land. Now, if that's shocking, it gets worse. You know what he did? He sold it. Because you can't buy beer with a deed. And the people cannot believe what they're hearing. No way he did that. He sold the land? Yes, to get cash. To head off to a border town. And everybody knows what a young man with cash heading off to a border town is going to do. And he does it. And the people are hearing this story saying, that's the most worthless son I've ever heard of. Good riddance. A dad like that doesn't deserve a boy like him. But the father that could not make that boy stay could not let that boy go. So every night, he'd get a chair and he'd sit on his porch and he'd just look down that road that headed to the border. And in one night, He sees him, his boy. Now, he's dirty, and he smells, and he's broke, but he's coming home. And the people can't stand it anymore. What is going to happen now? Well, let's just let Jesus finish the story. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. He was calling to his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here. Given up for dead and now alive. Given up for lost. And now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Nobody had ever painted a portrait of God like that. 
And I would contend, even though you've heard this story all your life, most of us still don't, in our mind, have a portrait of God like that. Can you see God at a party? You can see Him in a courtroom, sitting behind the bar wearing judges' clothes. You can see that picture of God in your head. You can see Him in a boardroom. Running the universe. You can even see him at a church service, sitting up at the front while everybody's singing to him. But can you see God at a party? Can you picture God in cargo shorts and a Hawaiian shirt and flip-flops? No, you can't. Your picture of God, either he's wearing uh, itchy white robes or a black polyester suit, right? And Jesus is saying, if you can't see God right, you will never see people right. The idea of party is central to understanding God. Just take a moment, just quickly examine these three stories. Did you notice that every one of them starts with separation? In every story, something of value is separated from the one to whom it belongs. And each time, Jesus uses the same word. And the word he uses is lost. And in each story, there's great agony on the part of the owner over this lostness. And that's because, biblically speaking, it's a terrible thing to be lost. You can go to Palestine today, walk all over that country. You will never find a flock of wild sheep. A lost Sheep is about to be a dead sheep. Biblically, lostness equals death. This is a strong word that Jesus uses. It's the same word the disciples used when they're on that boat in the storm and they wake up Jesus. Don't you care that we perish? That's the word. It's the same word Peter uses in 2 Peter when he says, God's not willing that any should perish, all should come to repentance. It's the word Jesus used when he praying and he says, I have lost none of the disciples you gave me except the one destined for destruction. This is a scary word. And Jesus used it all the time and the church hardly ever uses it anymore. You ever notice that nobody's lost anymore? Now people are unchurched. They're seekers. They're on a journey. But nobody's lost. That's not how Jesus saw it. And it framed how he saw his mission. So sure enough, a little bit later, there's another tax collector who says, Come to my house for another party. His name was Zacchaeus. He showed up. It offended the critics. And he explained why he went. He said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. In every single story, something terrible has happened. Something, somebody, is lost. But, did you notice in each story... That builds toward reconciliation. There's this incredible tension as the listener wonders. Is there going to be a reunion ever taking place? In the first two stories, an all-out search is warranted. I'm going to leave the 99 sheep. i got to go find that one. I'm going to turn the house upside down. i got to find that coin. You see, it's interesting that in Jesus' view, people aren't seekers. God is. And God is looking. For his lost children. 
And in the third story, it's hard for us to appreciate how shocking the ending is. Because Jesus says something that's innocuous to us and raised the eyebrow of everybody who heard him live. He said, the old man ran. you got to understand, back then, older men wear robes. You couldn't run in a rope unless you did one thing. You had to hike it up above your knees. In their culture, once a man reached 30, you never showed your legs in public again. It was disgraceful. It was completely lacking in dignity. The only way that father could run to that boy was to look as undignified as that boy did. To take the shame of the boy onto himself. And I would suggest that in that run, you see another story. And the terrible sprint from heaven all the way to a cross. You see, this story is ultimately Jesus' story. Allow me to retell it with a little twist. There was a father and he had two sons. Now the first son's name was Joshua. And Joshua was the perfect boy. He lived to do the will of his father. Second boy's name was Adam. Adam had a rebellious streak. And one day he said to his father, I'm going out on my own. And he did. He took off. Now, Joshua stayed home, and Joshua was still an awesome son. He lived to please his dad. But something in the dad's heart broke the day Adam left. And nothing Joshua could do could change that. Joshua made up his mind, i got to go find Adam. He started hanging out at the marketplace, listening to the traveling salesman. He got, he got word of where he was. One night at dinner, he says, Dad, I know where Adam is. But he's sick, and he's dirty, and he's broke. He can't come home unless you send me to the filthy place he is to go get him. And the father did. The father sent, the father risked his perfect son to go find Adam. Adam was in this barn. He was sick. He had a fever. He was filthy. He was smelly. He was weak. He was in a semi-coma when Joshua found him and put his head in his lap and put some water on his face. And he came to and saw his brother. What are you doing here? I come to take you home. Dad misses you so bad. I'm too weak. That's okay. I'm putting you on my back. About that time, the pig farmer burst in the barn and says, Put him down. You can't have him. He belongs to me. He's legally mine. He's in my debt. Joshua stood up big and strong and looked at the pig farmer and said, Then I'll pay it. I'll give you my life for his. Adam is going home. He made a yoke in the shape of a cross, and he put Adam on it. And he made the long trip home. No Pharisee ever saw God like that. If they did, they would have joined the party. Did you notice that? Every single story ends 
in celebration. In every story, finding demands a party. And everybody's happy. Well, except in the third story, two people at the end are not happy. The older brother and the fatted calf. But everybody else is absolutely happy with how that story ends. Now, the elder brother says, we shouldn't be having a party. He's just like the Pharisees. But the father will not be deterred. I want you to notice this. No party is no option to the father. Look at what he says in verse 32. My son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive Again, he was lost and is found. Now, God doesn't say there are many things he has to do. That's a strong word Jesus uses. Same word he uses later when he says the Son of Man must be dead, be killed, buried, and raised. Same word, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. God Almighty doesn't have to do much. But he must be faithful. He cannot break a promise. He must be truthful. He cannot tell a lie. And Jesus says, and he must be joyful. He must be. He cannot deny his own character. When one of his lost kids goes home, God cannot not celebrate and pay for a party. Did you notice that? You see, we've got it wrong. This is not the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the prodigal dad. You know what the word prodigal means? Look it up in your dictionary. It means recklessly uh, wasteful with your money. It means you throw caution to the wind and you just spin till it's gone. You see what kind of party he threw? He paid for the best. He did not reckon his son's sin and he did not reckon the cost of the party. By the way, that's why he had a calf. You didn't kill a calf for a family. That's way too much meat to waste. You only killed a calf if you were going to invite the whole village to show up and come to the party. And have you ever noticed... That the Bible consistently depicts heaven as a great feast. It's sad that we've lost the joy of that word. We hear banquet and thought, oh no, an eternal banquet. I'm going to sit at a long table with linen napkins and hear speeches. No. In In the time of the Bible, there was no greater thing to look forward than one of the communal feast it was all out day and night big time party and jesus said if you know how it is in heaven you're supposed to be trying to bring that to the earth why haven't we Why haven't we seen party as central to the picture of God? Recently I read about a man in Japan. He's one of the Christian leaders in that very non-Christian country. His name is Dr. Ishida. And he was at a conference and he told the story how he found Christ in a very non-Christian country. He said he was a boy. It's during World War II. He was very scared. And he started trying to find God. So he did what he only knew to do. Went to a Buddhist temple. And I don't know how, except that I don't think it was a coincidence, he found a copy of the Bible. He tried to read it. Well, it made no sense to him until he got to Luke 15, 
Let me read his own words. He said, note this joy of God. I couldn't believe it. I always thought we need to get right with God. That's what I was trying to do with the Buddhist temple. But the Bible talked about a God who needs to save us. And when God saves us, when God finds us, God is filled with joy. What a strange God this is, I thought to myself. God is overjoyed with finding just one person? I found this new. I'd never heard of such a thing. It meant that God was concerned with me, with me, just one person. And God is filled with joy at finding me to this very day. That, to me, is what the gospel of Jesus is all about. And somehow we lost that. And so every day we meet people like Charlotte, who never connect Christianity with joy. You know what I'm talking about. Our country is filled with churches full of people who look like they were baptized in lemon juice. And who think it's supposed to be that way. And what I'm saying today, I think, is that a dreary gospel has lost the central message. Maybe the problem is this. Our churches aren't full enough of younger brothers. And they're way too full of older brothers. And some of you have had a very, very bad experience with an older brother. And I want you to listen to me close. Older brother religion and Christianity are not the same thing. Jesus came to find and party with the lost. And you can be lost in a pig pen. And you can be lost in a pew. But either way, If you missed the party, it's not because you weren't invited. About a month ago, someone sent me an email that I'm sure many of you got about this outstanding young man you're about to see on the screen. He plays quarterback at the University of Texas. His name is Colt McCoy. And uh, I happen to know his grandparents from the time I spent in Abilene. And the email was from his grandmother. She had gotten a call from young Colt asking her to pray because that night he was going to meet with some of his fellow football players this past summer down in Austin because they wanted to study the Bible. In particular, they wanted to ask some questions about if they should be baptized. So Colt met with about 15 football players, and they were studying along and having a good discussion. And they came to that chapter in Acts where the Ethiopian eunuch says, Well, here's some water. Why shouldn't I get baptized? And one of them said, well, why shouldn't we? There's a pool right here. And five of them did. So about 10 o'clock that night, he called his grandmother to tell her the good news and to thank her for praying for him. But she had a hard time listening. And she said, what's all that noise? And he said, Grandma, they're celebrating. No one had to tell them. No one had to preach a sermon. It's appropriate now to have a party. They just knew. 
And I just want to say one more thing. In two weeks, when he plays the Sooners, if you don't root for this boy, (laughs) then you're going to have to do business with God. You know, the fact of the matter is, everybody here is Adam. Everybody here is the wrong kind of person. And if you go to a party with the wrong kind of a people, you're at the right kind of party. Would you stand up, please? We're going to sing a couple of happy songs. And I want you to sing happy. You have permission to clap. You have permission to hop up and down on your feet if you want. You have permission to enjoy yourself. You have permission to act like this is happy hour. And while we sing this song, two things, if you want to be baptized, right now today you come down to the front. And while we're singing, I'm going to ask the men who passed out communion to go get the buckets because we're going to pass out some party favors that we're going to use in a moment. So pick up your party favor, let's sing and let's celebrate our good God. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. I will enter. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice, for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. This is the season for a new anointing. This is the season for a fresh outpouring. That the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine. That the sons and daughters of the King of glory may arise and shine as we declare. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. In the beginning. Son and daughter of the King of glory, now rise and shine. Every son and daughter of the King of glory, now rise and shine as we declare. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let your glory fill.
fill the earth. Let your glory fill the earth. Let your glory fill the earth. Let your glory fill the earth. As we declare, this is the day, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice, I will rejoice, I will rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. King of glory. Everybody get one of these. Show me you know how to use it. All right. Listen up. We got two that want to be baptized. Michael Stegman is going to be baptized right after this service. But Belle Davis is going to be baptized here in just a moment. And when she's baptized, we are going to clap and we're going to blow. You can do both. I promise. We're going to celebrate just like they are in heaven that one more is added to the family. Go ahead and have a seat, please.